Is God taking his cues for what he thinks about you, when he thinks about you, from what you think of yourself? Is that where God gets his primary impression? Is God taking his cues for what he thinks about you, when he thinks about you, from what other people have said about you? And is God operating by the primary dictates of this culture that says your behavior really matters? And is that the primary filter by which God evaluates you when he thinks about you? What if God, on the other hand, doesn't take his cues from you when he thinks about you? And what if God doesn't care what anybody else says about you? When he thinks about you. And what if God says that the culture that has leached into every one of us, we cannot escape it. Performance is the mark of your value. What if God looks at that culture and says, that might be true for the world I created, but that's not true for me. That is not the lens through which I view you. What if there is an entirely different way that God sees? When was the last time you thought about What does God think about me? Now, you might be sitting here saying, Ben, you don't know me. So you don't know what God thinks about me. You you don't know where I was last night, last week. You don't know what happened to me. You don't know what they did. You don't know what I did. How in the world could you possibly know what God thinks about me? Well, I don't know the details of your life, but I know from the Bible very specifically what God thinks thinks about you. In fact, I get my impressions when I'm doing it right, when I'm walking correctly about what God thinks about me, not from what I think about that, but from what God's word tells me. The whole purpose, you have a Bible sitting in your house somewhere, most likely. The whole reason Jesus came to this earth was so that God could establish once and for all his basic heart for us. And his heart for us, viewed clearly by us, would change everything. He wanted you and me to know and have no doubt at all where he is on the matter. What does he think about you? And here it is. What does God think about you? He loves you. No matter what you've done, no matter what you think about what you've done, no matter how what you've done has marred your image of yourself, no matter what other people said about what you've done that's marred marred your image of yourself, no matter what our culture has told you that you feel like you have or haven't lived up to that has marred your image of yourself and by consequence marred your image of God, God loves you. The premise today is very simply that what you do has absolutely no impact at all on God's heart towards you. None. And this is a radical idea. This is a crazy idea. It runs counterintuitive. Every single person in here has had enough of the culture leach into them that when I say God loves you completely without error, not based on what you do, you might mentally assent and agree to me. You might cognitively or theologically or philosophically shake your head. But often, I'm telling you, it happens all the time. I've talked to many of you. I've had conversations with my own therapist. I've talked to high school students when I was a teacher. Often, the gap between our theology or philosophy or what we know the right answer is up here and here in our heart, what we really deep down feel is huge. 
And so as a church, we're going to take some time, drill down on this question and get this one right. Because I fundamentally believe that if you could see what your heavenly father sees in you, if you could see what he sees in you, the very essence of himself that he put in you, it would revolutionize the way you see him. It would revolutionize the way you live this life. Some of you, listen to me, have been following Jesus for a long time, but it has been a long time since you have sensed his love for you. That's going to change. Some of you have gone a long journey, and you have felt like you have been pushing uphill spiritually for months, years, a decade or two. And you have not felt the sweetness of God's opinion of you wash over you and flood your heart and spill over like a cup that runs over. You haven't sensed that in forever. And that's going to change. It's going to begin today. And if you will dig down deep into what God himself has said he thinks about you, and if you will quiet your mind and quiet the voices of everybody else and hold back the culture... His voice, from his word, from the example of his son Jesus, from the whisper of his spirit, will wash over you. And it will change everything. See, I'm not making this up. This comes right from the pages of the Bible, right from Jesus. The reason I can say that God loves you is because Jesus loves you, not because it's my idea and not because it's some kind of psychobabble. Listen to me. This is not gospel light. This is not half of the word of God. This is the entire reason Jesus came to this earth was to convince us that even though we are sinners, God loves us. This is not some feel-goodism. This is not pop psychology. This is not turn your TV to your most incredible motivational speaker so you can feel good about yourself. This is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Anything that would want to convince you otherwise, anything that would distract you from being awash in the love of God is a lie from the enemy. It is. The Bible is clear. Our heavenly Father loves us. Jesus came to this earth. He was God in a body. He was perfection personified. He was holiness in a robe. And everywhere he went, he wanted to elevate this idea that God loves the people he created. He started it right back in the first book of our Bible when he made human beings, that's me and you, the greatest of all of his creation. He said out of everything he created, you are more important than a tree. You're more important than a dog. You're more important than the earth globally. You are the pinnacle of his creation. And if you were in the first century, if you lived back when Jesus lived with all your stuff and all your sin and all your goofiness, and if you were to pull up next to Jesus, what you would discover his constant message would be. God has an opinion about life, of course. But the biggest piece of that opinion about life is this. He loves you. He wants you to know it. He doesn't want you to know it. He wants you to know it. He doesn't want it to be something you con. Uh, that you mentally assent to or theologically agree with, he wants it to be something that you feel and it impacts your life. Every religion struggles with this issue. What does God think about me? What do I need to do in light of what God thinks about me? What, is I, what am I obligated to do to change how God thinks about me? 
And the whole reason Jesus came was to make it very clear that God loves you. John, the apostle who walked with Jesus, called the disciple that Jesus loved, he said it this way, God is love. He's not just loving you. The very essence of his being is that he loves. In fact, the only people that didn't really like what Jesus had to say, this might strike you as interesting, were the people who thought that God liked them because they were good. Of all different kinds of names, um, for it in the Bible, they were the religious, they were the Pharisees, they were the people who had this deep religious heritage, and they lived up to the standards of that heritage largely. When Jesus enacted, interacted with them, sometimes you get sharp anger and criticism. Almost every interaction you have with Jesus, with another person outside of that group, he's trying to convince them with objective words and subjective stories that he loves them. And maybe, guys, maybe the love of God is bigger than you and I have imagined in a long time. Maybe it is wider and deeper and higher than we've thought in a long time. And maybe you have been so busy just running life, dealing with the stuff on your plate, dealing with things that were beyond your control. Maybe you even put those at God's feet and said, why are you doing this to me? I'm going to ask you over the next few weeks to put that on hold and try the best you can to come with an open heart and a receptive mind to consider what does God have to say about his love for you. Everywhere Jesus went, there were two groups of people. You see it all throughout the pages of the Bible. There were the rule keepers, like we just described, the Pharisees, the religious folk, and there were the rule breakers. There were the good and the bad. And both thought that what God thought of them depended on what they did. And Jesus, time and time again, convinced them, wanted to convince them that they were wrong. Now, one of the reasons I believe the Bible is the word of God that you can depend on is because when you read it, it's so brilliant. Now, when you read the Bible, you get Jesus dealing with these two groups of people, rule breakers and rule keepers, in such a way that his message becomes very clear. The challenge for some of us in the room, if I can just be honest, and don't receive any condemnation in this, I'm just being honest of why it is sometimes for us to really consider what God's love is like, is we haven't really picked up his word and read and internalized his message to us. When you do it and you see him interacting with these two groups of people, that something becomes very clear. That a lot of people loved Jesus. They couldn't get enough of him. They always wanted to be where he was. And ironically, he seemed to always want to be where they were. They liked Jesus, and he liked them. If you were alive in the first century, and you weren't a part of that first group I'm describing, the good, upstanding rule keepers, chances are you couldn't wait to get around Jesus. You couldn't wait to hear what he had to say. If some of you are coming into church today because somebody invited you and maybe it's been a while or you've been attending for a little while but you haven't fully connected because you have an opinion about church and about God that isn't right, it might be very simply that you haven't looked at Jesus in a while and you've been too busy looking at the people that represent him, like us, like me. When you look at Jesus in the Bible, friends, the picture is very clear. I'm gonna show you a couple of those in just a moment, but before I do that, I just got to tell you something that Gandhi said. You guys have heard of Gandhi, right? Major, major influencer for a significant portion of the world. He said this. He said, I like your Christ. I like Jesus. I just don't like your Christians. 
You Christians are so unlike Christ. He spent time going through the Bible. He had discussions with evangelists, and he said, I'm almost there. It's just I don't believe the people who say they believe it really believe it. And to that I say, whoa. I don't think we spent enough time taking Jesus seriously. Some of you have taken him very seriously when you're being bad and you're beating yourself up. Some of that might even be healthy occasionally. Some of you have taken him very seriously when you've tried to apportion his grace to cover stupidity that you know is stupid. I, I understand that. But when you really dig down deep and you take him seriously, it impacts everything you do. Matthew chapter 9 in your Bibles, if you have them, if not on the screen behind me. Matthew chapter 9 is a perfect example where this dichotomy of Jesus walking on the earth and the rule keepers and the rule followers had him figured out, they thought, he's going to respond to me based on what I've done. And the rule keepers, they, they should have interaction with Jesus that's enjoyable and fun. And the rule breakers, of course, should be scorned and shunned. Matthew chapter 9, though, gives us a different example. Matthew chapter 9 says this. Jesus went on from there, and he met a man named Matthew. Now, in your Bible, if it's open, at the top of your page, it says Gospel of Matthew or Book of Matthew or Matthew. And we just read his name right here. The very guy right in the story we're reading is talking about himself right here. Sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, uh-oh, Matthew's a tax collector. You may not know this historically, but these folks are not good. They don't follow into the category of rule keeper. They are rule breakers. They are the worst of the worst. You did not like taxes back in the day, just like you don't like them now. But you didn't like tax collectors because they had certain authorities and powers to take more from you than what was owed. And they had the full weight of the Roman authority behind them. And Jesus is at this dude's house having dinner. And it says, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. This would have been scandalous in the day. It's still scandalous when followers of Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners. And when the Pharisees, the rule keepers, two major groups here, saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why doesn't he have a hard and fast rule that if you do good, you get God's favor, and if you do bad, you don't? Why is it he's breaking the cosmic law of the universe? Why is he going outside the rules? Verse 12, on hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. Listen, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinner. We're going to unpack those verses at the end, but I want to take you to another place in the Bible where Jesus lives in this, what seems, when you think about it, strange universe, upside down world. It's a story you may have heard. It's a story we call the prodigal son. I mentioned it briefly just a week or so ago. But I want us to drill down into it for just a second. One day, the Bible says in Luke chapter 15 that Jesus was sitting around and tax collectors and sinners came to hear him again because back in the day, everybody wanted to be around Jesus. People liked him and he liked them. And not only did tax collectors and sinners come, but the Pharisees came. And Jesus is brilliant, and he begins to tell them three stories. He sucks them in with these stories. He says, there's a person who has 99 sheep, has 100 sheep, and one ru ru runs off, and there's 99 left. And he drops everything and goes and finds the sheep. 
And in a culture that knew a lot about sheep, they all are nodding the head. Mm. That's, that's a good shepherd right there. He, he goes and finds the lost one. And then he says, there's a woman who has many coins, and she loses one of her coins. She turns her house upside down, and when she finds her coin, she rejoices. And everybody in the crowd's like, hmm, that's good. We, we, we all know what it's like to lose something valuable and to hunt for it, find it. And in a culture, in a culture where poverty was the norm, not like today you lose some money, you're like, oh, maybe it's in the wash, I think I'll find it. No, she turned her house upside down to find this thing of, of value. Everybody can relate. Everybody. I mean, tax collectors and sinners, the rule breakers could relate, and the Pharisees could relate. When something of value is lost, you, you look for it. And when you find it, there's great joy. And then Jesus tells them a story you've heard so many times, it dulls your ears. He says there's a dad with two sons. Now, by this point in the life of Jesus, they knew all about parables. They did. They understood that the many rabbis told stories that illustrated life. And typically, in the stories, there was a God person, and then there are other people. Like in the story, somebody represents God, and in the story, the other people represent other kinds of people. And so when you listen to a parable, you try to size yourself up with where you fall. Who am I? Who, which one is me? So he says, there's a dad who has two sons. Dad's wealthy. And one day, the younger son comes to him and says, Dad, here's the deal. Let's pretend you're dead. He didn't say it that way. He said, Dad, I want my inheritance. Now, in the day, you didn't get your inheritance until the dad was dead. And since he's a younger son, he's not going to get it all. He's going to get a third or maybe a fourth of it. The bulk of it's going to go to the older son. And the dad does something remarkable. And at this point, everyone in the audience leans in. The tax collectors and sinners, the rule breakers lean in those who believe that God doesn't really like them because they're not good, and the people who are generally keeping the rules and believe God kind of thinks better of them because they're keeping the rules, they all lean in because Jesus says this phrase, and the dad says, okay. Because it's a parable, he doesn't have to go through all the details, but bottom line is he had to liquidate a lot of the assets in an agrarian society, which takes a big amount of time and effort, and he gives the son his portion, and the Bible says the son hits the trail. Now, at that point in the story, everybody knew who that son was. Everybody listening did a quick gut check and said, mm-hmm. If you're a Pharisee, you say, mm-hmm. Those people over there are the rule breakers. That's what they're like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I can't wait to see how this is going to work. Mm-hmm. Because everybody knows that when you don't do good, you know what the father does. He's angry. He's mad. I mean, he legally went ahead and did the thing, kind of nice of the dad. But everybody deep down knows how this is going to roll. And of course, everybody on this side of the equation, that were, were breakers, they all went, mm. I mean, they knew. They knew. They knew that that was them. They knew that they had things to do that they didn't do. They knew that there were things they shouldn't do that they did do. They knew. Just like you and I know. They knew. And they really, really enjoyed the first two stories, and they couldn't wait to hear how Jesus was going to end the other story. So Jesus continues the story and he says, and the young man, he goes out and he spends his life on riotous living. You can unpack that in your own mind. It's bad. One day he comes to his senses and he says, I'm going to go back to my dad, not as a son. I'm going to go back to my dad as a servant. I'm going to create a story that explains why he should treat me as a servant because I know he'll never treat me as a son. I have no reason to be called a son. You don't treat a person like a son when you acted the way I've acted. And he comes back and he begins 
wants to. He's waiting for the opportunity to tell his story. And before he can even start to tell his story, here's what the Bible said. Now listen to me. The Bible says that while he was a far way off, his father saw him, ran towards him. And I can imagine the younger son thinking, I got to start telling my story. I, I, I got I, I to explain. I got I to plead my case. I got I to do something because I know how this rolls. When you mess up like I do, there's no chance. And the Bible says that before the son can ever start talking, here's what the Bible describes the father as. And the father had compassion on him. The father had compassion on him before he told his story, before he apologized, before he did anything. The father had compassion. It's one of the ways, one of the words we use to describe the complex, full love of our heavenly father for us. Compassion. So the Pharisees are over here listening. The rule keepers. The ones who are pretty sure that God likes them a little bit more than those folks and likes them at least in part because of what they do, they're wondering how the rest of the story is going to play out. The Bible says that the older son hears that there's a party being thrown in the younger son's honor. He doesn't know that. He just knows there's a party. So he asks somebody what's going on. They say, hey, there's a party. Your, your brother, he's back. Very quickly, dad and older brother have a conversation. And the brother says to the dad, you never treated me that generously. Never. I've done all this stuff for you. And then the father says something very interesting. We would expect him in our normal way of thinking about the world to say something like this. You know, you're right. You have obeyed everything I've ever asked. That's not what he said. The father says this, and I want you to catch this word. The father says... You have been with me all along. He didn't say you've been honoring me all along. You've been obeying me all along. You've been doing the right thing. He said you've been with me all along. And the reason we have to throw a party for your son is because, not because he's now turned and repentant, but because he was away, but now he's with us again. I mean, I think that right here on the front end of our crazy love experiment for the next several weeks, in large group in here and in small groups, we need to get a sense of God's priority here. That being with Him is first. There might be some things that come second. But the love of God, what He wants more than anything else from you, is to be with Him. With Him. And I know this runs against the grain. But I'm telling you, friends, if you can get a sense of how much God wants to be with you first and establish that as a fact, not just a theological proposition, establish that as a fact for you, not just for the people you talk to, it'll change the way you see yourself. It'll change the way you see others. You'll forgive more quickly if you really believe at the end of the day that what God's really concerned about is his love spreading in this world. It'll affect how you see other people. It'll affect the kind of life you call yourself to. It'll impact how you spend your money, what you do with poor people, 
what you do with people of different race, what you do with people in different social class than you. If the love of God is not based on what you do, but based on his desire to be with you, that's a game changer. See, he's already accepted you. Already. He didn't do anything. The Bible says, in fact, that before you were born, he gave his life on a cruel tree. That while you were yet sinning, Christ died for you. And me. And your wife, you're having a hard time forgiving. And that estranged child. And the person at work you can't stand. And the person you don't think is as good a Christian as they need to be. And the person that you think is too legalistic in their walk with Christ. He died for us. He said through his life and in his word that being with him is the beginning point. And here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Grab out your connect card. Let's take a few steps together. While you're getting that, let me ask you just a heart-searching heart question. Which brother do you think God loved more? The answer is none. So let me ask it this way. Who do you think God loves more? You or me? Now, before you answer that, let's just get something clear. I'm a pastor. That's supposed to be a joke, friends. I'm a pastor. I preach. I read God's word pretty regularly. I try to do right. And most of the time, hit it marginally. How you answer that question, who does God love more? You or Billy Graham? You or Mother Teresa? Who does God love more? Can I tell you? God loves so, on the back of your Connect card, here's the first thing. I wonder if there's anybody in the room that would say, I want to give Jesus my life and receive the life he's offering for the very first time. You want to accept the love, commit to him your life. We use two words for that. Make him your savior, the forgiver of your sins. Just be honest, you know, you know you've blown it. So you just say, God, I've blown it, I'm a sinner. Forgive me, I need your grace, can't do it on my own. And then you make him the Lord of your life, which means he's the leader. He's in charge, you're second. He's number one, you're number two. If you want to try to live your life that way with him, receive his grace, in a moment I'm going to lead you in a prayer about that. It's a game changer. Here's number two. Is there anybody that would say, I want to know more about the crazy love of Jesus? I'm telling you, there isn't a single academic pursuit that you can give yourself more to than the depth of exploration to the crazy love of God. There isn't anything more important than that academically. Theologically, there isn't anything you can do more important than to fully discover God's love for you. When you do, it'll change everything about you. And if that's you, you can check the box and then you can get in your catalog of small groups and you can find a crazy love group meeting on a night you can meet in an area you can meet in. You can go online and do that or in your catalog. And some of you just need to go ahead and carve out the time because there's no convenient time to do this. And the enemy doesn't want you to discover it. And you're going to be busier than you've ever been, even as you try to do this. But power through and discover the crazy love of God. And you say, I don't know people. So they don't know you. As a church, though, we're going to discover the crazy love of God on a level we've ever known. And it's going to change everything for us. Here's the next step to see. I want to be baptized on October 2nd and let everyone know that I am crazy love of my Savior. We celebrate around here. The first sound people hear when they come out of the water is their brothers and sisters clapping. We're not clapping because they did something that we are excited about and proud of them for, although all that's true. We're clapping primarily because we know they're beginning to walk in the love of God in his forgiveness and grace. And he's gonna change them, mold them, and shape them over time into his image. Next step, D. 
I'm making a real effort to attend all four weeks of Crazy Love Message Series. That's right here on Sundays. You're one-fourth of the way through by being here today. If you come, we're going to explore a different aspect of God's love every week. And I'm telling you, it'll make a difference. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your grace and mercy. God, this week I have been impacted by your crazy love. I've seen it on the faces of the volunteers around here. I've heard it in the voices and the tears of people with prayer requests. I've experienced it as you've covered my own sin. I've seen it in my family, Lord, but God, around here in this place called Four Corners, we want the next several weeks to be a place where we discover fresh and new one of your primary messages. You love us. God, I lift up the people in this room right now who are saying they want to follow you with their lives. They want to admit that they're a sinner and confess you as the Lord and leader of their life. God, let them know your grace. Give them a taste now of your forgiveness and your mercy. God, call them to walk with you, be changed by you. God, I take a moment and I lift up every person in this room and ask you to break our hearts because you love us so much, to overwhelm us, fill us, full, overflowing with your spirit. Show us, Father, your love. Let it change us. We pray it in Jesus' name.